Golf's no different from hockey. Requires talent, self-discipline. Golf requires goofy pants and a fat ass. You should talk to my neighbor, the accountant, probably a great golfer, huge ass. How do you measure yourself with other golfers? By height. It's a very, very special honor. I'm Paula Creamer, and you're listening. Well, we're waiting. Hi, this is Martin Cove, a.k.a. John Kreese from Cobra Kai. And you're listening to Quiet, Please. Let the word go out from here across the land. Let Daddy Noonan uh, approve. Hiya, boys. Nice day for golf, eh? Quiet, please. Oh, you got secrets, eh? Hey, this is Shooter McGavin. You're listening to the... Hey, you guys. Hey, we're trying to have a podcast over here. And welcome, everyone, to another edition of Quiet, Please, the golf podcast. I am Alan DePew. I am your host for... Oh, the next 45, 50, maybe even an hour. We'll stretch this out because we got a lot to talk about. And joining us on the panel, as always, the Mr. Reliable, Andy Hydorn. Greetings, sir. Welcome. Nice to be here. Welcome. Uh, a sighting that we have not seen in forever, dropping our age uh, demographics down once again. The prettiest podcaster in golf, Christian Nazamus. It's so good to see you again. Been a minute, boys. Uh, it's been probably two months at least, right? Yeah, where you been? Uh, traveling the country. Uh, I just got a puppy, so I've been dealing with that as well. So <laughs> life just coming full circles for me. You know, that, you, you know that's a precursor. Just throwing that out there, Allison. If you're, if you're listening, anyway, and uh, he'll be he'll be here just momentarily. Boston Bob Baldessari, hailing from the the. Uh, the bourbon country, uh, and I'll just I'll just chime in, Andy, with oh, it's wicked, it's wicked, guys, it's yeah. wicked good. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be right there. But anyway, there. hey, we are excited to have a special guest, Mr. Hydorn. I will allow you the distinction of making the introduction. Rounding out our panel tonight is yes, uh, we want to roll out a warm welcome for Mike Booker. Um, Mr. Booker is a true legend of Texas amateur golf. Um, I've been the victim of, of his good play many times. Um, and just, just a couple of stats. This is going to be like Phil Mickelson listening to Tiger Woods get introduced on the first tee here. But um, Mike's won 14 Texas Golf Association titles. Jesus. He's won nine HGA Houston City titles. Um, he's a member of the Texas Golf Hall of Fame, inducted in 2019. Um, he's the only golfer ever to be named the Athlete of the Year by the Houston Sports News. Um, Mike's played in 14 USGA events, which is just unfathomable. It's such an accomplishment. And five RNA events on top of that. Um, he played his college golf at the University of Houston, was a uh, 1977 All-American. And for those of you who know just how good the University of Houston was back in those days, it was the preeminent program in college golf. Um, and not only all of that, Mike Booker is a true gentleman of the game. Um, he's, as they say, he's nice to everybody he plays with. He's nice to mice. He's uh, he's a true gentleman in in a great golfer as well, but uh, we're really happy to have you on the show here tonight, Mike. And one of the things that we're going to talk about um, is the new book that you've just written and released 
called the Tournament Golfers Playbook. So welcome to the Quiet Please podcast. Well, Andy, great. Thanks, guys. What a great introduction. I'm feeling pretty good about myself right now. <laughs> <laughs> you should. You should. Um, so, feeling better about yourself than Alan's golf game? Or? Yeah. Oh, come on now. <laughs> uh, hey, I'm sorry. Are we, going, are we going there already? Hey, hey I've, been, I've been away. <laughs> so, Mike, tell us a little bit about the origin of of the idea and finally the execution of you being able to put this book together and uh, offer it out to the public? It's a great question. I get that question a lot. And it's so weird, Andy. I had never on my radar to write a book. It's nothing I ever wanted to do. I, I'm a financial advisor here in Houston. I've written a couple chapters uh, uh, for other books, you know, where they've gotten uh, advisors to write a chapter. But And I thought that was arduous. I mean, it took me like, so I, I redid it, redid it, redid it. And it was just one chapter. So I never had a a real desire to write a book, but about three or four years ago, uh, coach Dismuke at the university of Houston, uh, gave me a call and he said, Mike, he said, I've got this really talented group, but we are not winning tournaments. In fact, we're not finishing nearly as high as, you know, we'd expect to do if, 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 if we didn't even play well, we're just, we're just, I don't know what the problem is. Would you come talk to him? And of course I was flattered and honored to do that. So I, I sat down at my desk and, um, I started to write down things that I thought were important to be successful in tournament golf, you know, like, um, you know, understanding what you can control, what you can't control, uh, the process as opposed to the result, uh, uh, being your own best friend, taking responsibility, uh, you know, learning how to forgive yourself. Th these were all things that I thought were really important. I hadn't given them a lot of thought to write them down before. So I sat down in front of these uh, young men. There were, I think, 15 or 17 of them. And the first thing I did was I sat down in front of them. I said, guys, I said, you all, I'm sure, think that you're tournament golfers. I said, but I think maybe you're just golfers who play tournaments. And they kind of looked at each other and, and they couldn't really figure out what the hell I was talking about. And um, so I went into all those things that I just mentioned that make up a, a tournament golfer versus just a golfer who shows up and, and plays tournaments. And I think I kind of connected with them and they went out about three weeks later and they won a big tournament. So I thought, wow, you know, maybe I did connect after all. Maybe I've got something here. So I started to put together, kind of expand my outline a little bit. And um, I thought maybe I'd put together a pamphlet, you know, give it to Andy, give it to buddies, you know, and maybe they get something out of it. And uh, I kept writing and writing and it got to where I thought, well, maybe I can make a little bitty book out of this thing. I don't know. And uh, it kept writing and it got bigger. And so I went online to investigate, you know, how many golf books there are. Well, there's, in case you didn't know, there's 60,000 golf books. So that was like full stop. The world does not need another golf I, book. I only have 50,000 of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, so I thought, you know, what am I thinking? This is a dumb idea. And then I dug a little deeper and I saw that, you know, a lot of the books on golf were on the mental side, which was my interest. But I noticed uh, of all the uh, the mental approaches to golf on those golf books were all written by sports psychologists and i thought gosh how many of them have stood over a five-foot putt to qualify for the usm and maybe some of them how many have had to par the last hole in the tour school to get their tour card and i thought well maybe but and i got nothing against sports psychologists but i thought well maybe it's time for someone who's actually played tournament golf to write about tournament golf and really uh, in the book i write about a lot of my failures that really I made an effort not to make the book about me because I'm nobody, but I played with a lot of really 
great players. And um, so I wrote the book um, and uh, it's about 130 pages or so. So it's not a big book. I wrote um, small chapters so um, younger people could, you know, take it and uh, and read a chapter and then, you know, think on it and come back, read it again real quick, you know, read it again easily. And um, I am still in shock. It's been uh, 13 months ago it came out. Um, it's been number one on Amazon uh, golf books uh, back in February. It was hit number one. It has uh, it hasn't left the, uh, the the bestsellers list on Amazon since it came out. So it bounces around. Obviously, uh, they all bounce around. Um, so, of course, I never look at that. You know, I, I don't ever look at that. No, no, no. Because no. you're, you're you know, not a scoreboard watcher, are you? <laughs> anyway, so it's been a, a blast. I just had a high school coach email me today. They're ordering fifty of them. Uh, he wants to give it to the golf team and then he wants to have uh, copies on, you know, uh, on uh, on campus for the teams as they come through. And we've had, you know, three or four Division One golf teams have picked it up and they're they're running with it. So I didn't ever plan to do any of this. And um, so that's been the biggest, biggest surprise and the most fun. I'm having a blast with it. Yeah, one of the one of the things for me that struck me um was as as you're you're going through the book and reading it, a, a lot of it's about mindset and your process and in your your kind of points of view on on what it is that that you're supposed to be thinking about, what it is that you're supposed to be doing. But I love the fact that you touched on the etiquette of the tournament player as well. Um, and people never talk about that. And and I thought that that it's such a valuable thing for people to be able to read and then kind of self-reflect on how who am I in this equation? Like where do I fit in? Am I that that tournament golfer? Am I just that golfer who plays in tournaments? How do I act? How do I carry myself? Like I thought that was some of the more fascinating stuff uh, in the book that nobody ever talks about. Yeah, that's, you know, and and that's the first time really someone's brought that up, uh, talking about that, because my whole thing, I, I, I um, the Texas Golf Association bought um, 240 of the books and they gave them out to all the kids, um, girls and boys at the state uh, junior this year. And they, and they asked me to speak at the welcome dinner that night. And what I told them was that, look, when things are going bad and they will go bad from time to time, you're still a tournament golfer. You're not, if you're going to be a tournament golfer, you're going to be a tournament golfer. What is a tournament golfer? Tournament golfer really has no excuses. They take responsibility for every shot they hit. They don't have a, uh, you know, they don't really live in a world of good breaks and bad breaks. Um, you know, the, the golfer plays tournaments, as I call them, you know, they have a golf bag full of excuses. They don't take responsibility for their shots. They would love to tell you if you'll, you know, if you can hang around for an extra hour after the round, you know, all the bad breaks they got. And all the bad things that happen. But the tournament golfer doesn't have time for that. Tournament golfer is more clinical. Tournament golfer is like an emergency room doctor. He hasn't got time to hear your background. He he just wants to take care of business because he hasn't got time to get, you know, to play into distractions. And so what I told these uh, junior golfers, I said, look, you know, things are going bad. If you're going to, I said, you can leave this room tonight, a tournament golfer. You make that decision. That's a decision you make. There's no barrier to entry. But that also means that when, you know, you start to want to throw a club because things are going badly. You don't, you know, you, you, you don't throw that club and because that's not what a tournament golfer does. And so it's how, it's the, what I really wanted to communicate to these young people and everybody who reads a book is that it's how you carry yourself. Um, it's, 
everybody knows that things are going to go bad, especially in tournament golf. Your butt is hanging out there for everybody to see, and your failure is out there for everybody to see. And so uh, we all get that. And the tournament golfer just you just got to roll with it and understand going in that it's it's not a fair deal, and you're going to get beat up. And the question is, how are you going to handle it? It's it's so funny that you say that too because playing D1 golf at Niagara, you see it all the time, right? From different kids who, whoever show up. And I love the quote that Brooks always says, Brooks Kepka, whenever he goes to a major, you're playing against what 20 guys, you know, that that's a tournament golfer in my mindset, right? Cause he's only, he's not going up against 140 guys he's going up against 20. Right. But you would, you would see kids in college too. That's the same way, right? If you go to a tournament of, the, of a field of a hundred, you're ultimately playing against 15 guys at most, maybe. You know, but you also have guys too that have that mentality where I play with guys who threw their clubs. I also did it when I was a junior. I've done it. I think we all done it. But it gets to a point too where it's like that mindset changes and it changed for me when I when I really hit my stride in high school where I knew that golf was going to be something. And I think after that happened, you know, now it's that mentality like you just alluded to where I don't have time for fun and games. I don't care if I shot 66. I don't care if I shot 86. I was going to the range directly after because even if I shot 66, I'm like, okay, I hit five bad drives today. I want to fix that. That that didn't sit well with me. That's, you know, and I think that's why a lot of these junior golfers that I've even had the, the fortune of talking to, and I'm sure you have as well, that I think that's where they lack a lot. They don't want to, I don't know if some of them, at least from my experience, they don't want to put that extra step in. But I think if they do that, it's only going to be, a great deal for them moving forward. Well, a lot of the, that's a great point. A lot of the concepts in the book were I could have, I, I thought so much about when the, when a high school player picks up the book or even a college player, I thought so much about the fact that, man, if I had somebody talking to me about these things when I was in high school, it would have been so amazing to, to it would have accelerated things. And somebody who really had that, in, in a way, I've had a one author uh, of a magazine article did that he said, this is really kind of a tough love thing. And I, it sort of is. It sort of is. It's just saying that I don't have enough. I want to be efficient in the way I think. And I haven't got time for all the BS uh, around me. And I, even if it's my own BS, I don't have time for that. Yeah, absolutely. When I, when I, my, my swing coach growing up, he always told me, and I live by this motto today, let your sticks do the talking. You know, I always go to the course with my mouth shut, just ready to play. And I, I, I hate losing. So I'm always competitive, obviously. And I've lived by that motto since I was 12 years old. And I don't care if I'm going out on a normal Saturday or, or Sunday that's having fun, or if it's a tournament that we play in, uh, you always want to win. And I think that's the difference between people who are tournament golfers and people who aren't tournament golfers. That's a big part of it. I'll never forget. Yeah. Uh, I played Lindy Miller was at Oklahoma state, you know, Lindy played in the masters, played on tour for mm -hmm. a number of years, was number one amateur in the world. He was at Oklahoma state. I was at Houston. We played in all America together. And he played the uh, the first, um, I guess it was even par, and he was kind of frustrated. And then he birdied um, uh, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Birdied the last five holes to shoot 67. And I'm, I'll never forget this. He walked off the green, and his guys, you know, D David Edwards was there, his teammates, and they were, you know, and uh, how'd it go, how'd it go? And he said, 67. And he, and he didn't even break his stride, he kept walking. And I thought to myself, yep. well, no, it wasn't just a 67, dude. You, you. Birdie the last five holes, you know, you were so clutching. I know what I would have said. Well, let me tell you all about this. You know, <laughs> I birdied the last five holes. You know, yeah. I would have, you know, and that's the difference. I was, I was still a golfer who plays tournaments and Lindy was, Lindy was a tournament golfer, period. And that's just one example. It's just so clinical. It's just not, you know, it's not buying into all the, all the crap around. Right. Mike, I got, I got so many things to say. Segways coming from every direction here. 
<laughs> so Christian mentioned, you know, let your sticks do the talking, which the guy I grew up utmost respect for, unfortunately passed away, uh, Mike Wynn, University of Houston grad, early 70s, uh, played the tour. And that's all he ever used to say to me. Just let your sticks do the talking. Let your sticks do the talking. Um, I don't know if all he used to, he raved about Houston. He goes, I was there to, he goes, I went to Houston to learn because it was a powerhouse and I was getting ready for the tour. I don't know if he was, when, when he would have been there in relation to when you would have been there. Obviously, uh, he's older, much older than you. But yeah, I I met him um, and I knew him, but not as a friend. But I knew who he was. He was he was a few years ahead of me. Right, hell of a player. Yep. I mean, he could do more shit with a golf ball than I've, I've, I've. I'd love to tell you just some of the stories that, that just standing in the golf shop watching him do some stuff with a golf ball. But you said something that I want to jump on also, and th- first thing that comes to my mind because my mind tends to race. That's why my initials are ADD. Um, there was a line back in the, and he's laughing. <laughs> you, you've never used that before. You you got to throw that out more often. <laughs> well, I got to, anyway, Anyways, <laughs> there was a line in the greatest game ever played. Okay. I, I'm sure everybody saw that movie. Everybody's watched every golf movie, but they talk about Varden. He says, there's only two types of play. I brought up the quote. There's only two types of players, those who keep their nerves under control and win championships and those who do not. As you're talking about how the hows and whys that you wrote that book, that screams exactly of that quote. And I don't know if you actually said it or if they just associated it. But is that really what I mean, is that why you wrote the book? Just to teach those guys to. I just wanted to um, honestly, I really wanted to just leave something behind. And once I started writing it down on one uh, on an outline, I went like, wow. You know, I had never thought of all these things and organizing them in the way I did that. And so uh, and this concept, I mean, the, the concept of staying in the present and having a process, that, you know, obviously that's not my idea, but um, I wanted to give it an emphasis. Some of the things that were my ideas that you may think you're a tournament golfer just because you're playing a tournament and you're not. And here's why. And so that's what I really that something the book I think was different about the book is that we're just presenting, um, you know, tournament golfer, you got. 10 foot putt on the last hole to win the tournament. Um, a tournament golfer, in my view, is going, understands that the ball may not go in the hole, first of all. They understand they're, they're going to work through their process, a pre shot routine. They're going to read the putt, you know, how hard I got to hit it, what's the line I'm going to hit it on. And then they know that all they, all they can do is hit the best putt they can hit. And that's really all they're thinking about. The, the golfer plays tournaments. Uh, he's already checked his phone, especially nowadays. Checked his phone. He knows if I make this putt, I win the tournament. He knows that right away. And uh, he's thinking, man, that trophy's going to look pretty awesome in my study. And my girlfriend's going to think I am awesome if I win this big turn. And all these result-oriented sort of things that totally screw up the process of making your best stroke. And so that's right. the big that's the big difference. I mean, th- I tell a story in the book um, about uh, uh, Kenny Perry in, in 1999, I think it was. He went, he's, he was, he had made 37 million bucks on tour. He was known as the the greatest player to never win a major. He goes to the masters and his two uh, parts of his process are number one, he was going to be patiently aggressive, which I guess means not go for sucker pins. And then he also wasn't going to look at the leaderboards, which of course the masters and Augusta is famous for. So he goes and he comes in the last round. He hits it six inches on 16, the par three takes a two stroke lead. Two more holes left in the tournament. He's not looked at a scoreboard the whole week. From 16 T box to 
uh, green to, to 17 tee box, he looks up for the first time and he, he sees he's got a two-stroke lead and he tells his caddy, par, par, and we win the Masters. So all week long, he'd been processed, right? Patiently aggressive, not looking at scoreboard, just sticking to his knitting. And for the first time, he switched. By his own admission, in an interview, he said, I switched into away from my process into results. And, of course, we all know what happened. He went bogey, bogey, and then uh, Angel Cabrera beat him when he made another bogey in the, in the playoff. And so uh, it's it's that concept of keeping yourself from getting into results-oriented thinking and a lot of uh, staying in the present. A lot of that has to do with you know breathing techniques you can use, but reminding yourself, catching yourself, jumping ahead or jumping behind, you know, miss that two foot putt back there. And you're still thinking about that and you knock it into the trees off the tee, the next hole. Uh, Al Geiberger, uh, the opposite of that, Al Geiberger way back in 77, a colonial in Memphis shot the 59. Did everybody, he was Mr. 59, which is outrageous. And they, uh, they, they, I got a transcript of the, uh, the interview afterward. And one of the first things he got asked, what was it like? writing the score down, you know, seven under, eight under, nine under, 10 under. What was that like, Al? And he, he said, are you out of your mind? He said, when you got a round like that going, you don't even keep score. You just keep playing. <laughs> and if you think about it, when the guys shoot these ridiculously low scores, guy shoots 59, a 60. If you go back and play a lot of the video, they will often tell you, I didn't realize, I didn't realize I had this putt for 58 or 59. I didn't even know it. And and people say, how can that be? You, you, you know, you knew you were playing great, but when you're in that zone, which really is presence, that all it is is staying in the present, not getting ahead of you. They, um, it's amazing how many people have said, no, I had no idea. They all shocked when they told me I shot 59 or 60 or whatever it is. People don't get that. And they're, they're just in the present. Yeah. Even when you look at Tiger back in the day too, when he's won all these, like when he won what the U S open by 16, I think it was the one yeah, thing that I, yeah, I, I always go back and I watch that too because it sounds like it sounds corny to say it, but I, I do because you literally watch him, his mindset, his his in uh, integrity, nothing changes literally from Thursday to Sunday. He could be up twenty shots, but he's still pissed off if he parred fifteen or whatever because and that's why he is just you know I'm gonna say one of the greatest of all times, but I know people think that he's the greatest, but I I still think Jack's up there. But he's Jack's the same way. I'm with you. I, I, when I really piss people off and say when they say Tiger was the greatest, I said, so he's definitely top three. Absolutely 100%. top three. And then they just their, their hair goes on fire. So that's the part I enjoy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that plays right into the old hot seat later on. <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, so, Mike, Mike, I have a question for you. So you were obviously a successful junior golfer growing up in California. To a certain extent and then you know you had your success in college um at what point did you cross over from being a golfer that plays in tournaments to a tournament golfer well you know the truth of the matter is it was well after college um i was an all-american you know we won the ncaa i was all i had all these things um i got my pga tour card i was the youngest player on the pga tour in uh, when i was 22 and I was still not a, a tournament golfer. I I had all these guys going through high school and, and college. I was really perplexed because they were guys that I didn't think did anything. I thought I putted as well as they did. I thought I hit the ball as well. And they would, you know, fairly consistently beat me. And I couldn't, I didn't really know what it was. And I, I couldn't observe and see what it was. But there, there was a kind of a light bulb went off um, when I was um, probably in my, in my mid to late 20s. When I realized I was a I was a golfer who plays tournaments, I was showing up. I was having excuses. 
I wasn't taking responsibility. You know, if I hit it right down the middle and it goes in a divot, um, I'm, I'm not going to call that a bad break. I'm going to say I, I hit it there. And, and uh, I don't know. Did I aim for it? No, but I, 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 I hit it there. No one else hit it there. I have to take responsibility for it. So rather than spend all my time, guys, look at this. I'm in a divot. You know, everything's bad. Um, I was like, watch, watch me now. Watch how good a shot I can hit out of this. Watch me and, and not get into the, you know, the, the feeling sorry for myself type of thing. So that was, I had that for quite a long time. Like a lot of, that's why there aren't very many uh, tournament golfers. You know, I can make a case of Sergio Garcia. Not really a tournament golfer under my definition. Obviously, yeah. super successful, um, you know, and lovely player. I mean, I love his game, everything about his game. But he's always got excuses, and he's always complaining about that. And he's, you know, and so I think it, from the definition of my book only, not anybody else, uh, he's one of the greatest players of all time. But I think if he had been more of a tournament golfer, I think he'd have won. He would have won ten majors. That's a great point. Yeah, if he had the right. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. To be honest, I. Sergio was Sergio's a weird guy, in my opinion. He was never one of my favorite players because he always had that attitude. But I feel like if he changed that early on in his career, I 100% agree with you. I, but you I know, think to, to, Mike's, to Mike's point, I think all of those things that make up the definition of a tournament golfer are where Sergio falls short, right? I mean, he's always complaining. It's always... Yeah. You know, people are well, out to get him. I don't something. that's why he's on live. Texas yeah. blasphemy here, but could you make that argument about Jordan? I mean, every time you see him hit a shot, he's just oh, oh, oh. He's always got commentary afterward. I I would love, I mean, I don't know what's going on in his head. I know that, you know, as as crooked as he hits the ball, he has to really be his own best friend. And he has to, he doesn't he does not have time to go, Oh crap. I, you know, I hit it in the trees again, because <laughs> he's got it. He's got to come up with a, a great shot to get back in the game. And yeah. he's obviously on the greens. You know, he's, he's, a uh, um, he's not, he's not focused on the result. He's rolling that ball and the hole gets in the way more than most. He, I, I want to say he holds out from off the green one plus times around. <laughs> it yeah. seems like and it. So, so Mike, what, what's the oh, number one, what's the number one thing First of all, we're going to we need you to tell everybody where you, they can find the book. You said it's on Amazon, um, I, I think, right? And yeah, um, I've got a web a website for the book too. That's easy. You can either go on Amazon and put in my name or the book's name. Uh, the website, which is tgplaybook.com, like tournament golfer, tgplaybook.com, um, has a lot of other stuff. Um, it's got uh, a lot of background material. It's got uh, um, some of the, the golf channel interview I did and some of the podcasts, stuff like that. So there's a lot of great info on there. There's great links to, uh, other, other websites, but, and it's got my favorite button there. It says buy now you can find that button, hit that button. <laughs> so those are the two basic ways to get there. So I would recommend they go on there, but then they buy it through Amazon to keep you at number one on the rank ratings there. Well, the, the button will take you to Amazon. That's the, okay. that's the, right. that's the secret. <laughs> It's like it's like getting podcast ratings, right, Alan? Similar yet different, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> you know what else? You know what else had good ratings this week, Andy? Oh, I feel a segue coming on. I think it was probably the Hero World Challenge. <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah. But before before we get to that, I think the big news is what's going to happen up maybe near me tomorrow. That's what I'm hearing is potentially Wednesday. There's a press conference in. Uh, in the USGA offices, any thoughts on uh, anybody? Chime in. We've had this conversation before. It may be eminent 
golf ball rollback? Well, you know, I have an opinion on this, so. I think they're going to roll it back. Uh, I think they are. I, I can't imagine with all this, the quotes that have come out and hype about it, that they'd say, yeah, psych, just kidding. It's going to, it's going to happen. It's going to be very weird. I can't really imagine what it's going to feel like as I read about it. Um, but I think it's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I believe that it's going to happen too. I think it, it's all been officially announced. Um, and I stuck my stake in the ground on this when we first started talking about this. And I, I don't really have much sympathy for people complaining about this. I, I both on the amateur end and on the professional end, only because I think at the end of the day, there's a there's a difference between the longest hitters and the shortest hitters, and that difference will still exist. It's just going to be graded down um, to a more manageable level, if you will. So, I mean, do I have any sympathy for people who are going to have to recalibrate, you know, how they, you know, kind of go about playing golf via the distance they're hitting their golf clubs? I mean, they're they're going to figure that out. That's not a big deal. The, the biggest question for me is, is what happens, you know, to the other dynamics of the golf ball? Is it is it purely a distance thing or is it a spin thing as well? Um, and if it is a spin thing, in addition to just a distance standard, then that's going to affect things like golf club design. And so I think all that kind of remains to be seen. But um, I'm all for it because I, I just don't feel like, like, you know, it, it, it's, it's unsustainable the way things keep going. And I think, I think the, the regulations and standards up until now have been, you know, kind of been a workaround for the, the ball manufacturers. And, you know, here we are with people, you know, driving it an average of 320 yards and like again we've talked about this before i think it sticks in my mind but i think in like 1980 or 1979 dan pole led the tour in driving at like 279 or something like that we had so, we had we had chip back on many moons ago and and chip was telling the story about augusta he's walking off of i think it was eight he's playing a practice round with george archer and archer says See where that tee, see that up there? That's where the tee box is when I won. And their tee box was, this is in the mid 90s, their tee box is another 60 yards back from there. And the tee box is even obviously much further back from that, even nowadays. So there's no question about it. But at the same time, we also had then had, this is where I disagree with. We also had the Billy Hurleys of the world that says we're seeing the tig true tiger effect on tour that athletes are coming to the game. And the athletes are, are are playing at such a higher level. Tennis court doesn't change. Tennis court's the same, but the serves are faster. Yeah, that Harry Higgs is such an athlete. He is. <laughs> <laughs> he is indeed. Well, my two cents is I haven't thought it through all the way, but honestly, I'm a tournament golfer, and I'm there for the competition. And honestly, if they went to hickory shafts, I'm in. I just want oh. to compete. Agreed. I just want to compete. If we're going to play down, hey, hey, we're going to play I-10, you know, the two left lanes down I-10, I'm in. Yep. Um, so I don't think it's 
I think maybe um, maybe for the senior golfers, you know, I guess I am a senior golfer uh, who uh, who are hitting it, you know, 200 off the tee. And it's, they say it's a 5% hit. So, um, you know, 5% shouldn't make a monster difference for a higher handicap, really shorter, shorter hitter. So I, I, I guess I'm, I'm more on Andy's camp on this. I haven't thought it all the way through yet, but, but I think that I'm, I'm there to compete. So for me, just speaking for myself only, we go, we go to Hickory Shabs and, and go play down the interstate. I'm in. I'd like to see more spin put back into the ball, if anything. I mean, we all grew up with the Baladas. Yep. I mean, you, you hit that offline, you hit it offline. Yeah, we're going to get to hit it shorter and crookeder. <laughs> <laughs> Christian, what's your take on this deal? I don't think it's going to make a difference, to be honest. I mean, I think it for the, for the guys on tour, I'm saying. Um, I think, it would, if anything, it would make a difference um, to the to the senior tour, honestly. But you're talking about the Roy McIlroy's of the world, the the Dustin Johnson's of the world. It's not going to make a difference to them. I, don't I think, know. That, I think that's, all re- that's all relative, though, because – yeah. You know, they're playing golf courses that are 7,400 yards and, you know, the senior tour is playing golf courses that are 68, 6,900. True. So it's all relative. And and at the end of the day, I think the one thing that people are failing to to recognize is that it's it's the distances in golf. The distance phenomenon is not about the numbers as much as it's about the relativity of it. So if Mike Booker hits it 30 by me, it doesn't matter if he's hitting it 400 and I'm hitting it 370 or if he's hitting it 250 and I'm hitting it 220. Like that, that part, that's the thing that matters. It's the relativity of distance. And at the end of the day, you know, a big smash drive when, when we were young growing up, you know, went 250, right? I mean, that, that was a yeah. big drive when we were growing up. So does uh, that mean we're better golfers now that we're hitting them 280? Andy, back then I could t- turn my shoulders to 90 degrees. So I, I, I think it's I think it's going to bring a lot of skill back, though, to these top players as well, if I'm being honest. Like, I think with the rollback, yes, it's going to bring back some sustainability, I think, um, to the game. And I also think that it's going to bring back a lot more of that skill, to be honest. So, um, but, but how? I don't. I don't... I don't see. Well, that. if they but add if they add spin to the ball, if they, yeah, if the spin spins on the ball, then yes, you'll you may see the the shot makers be reinvented. But yeah, right now I also kind of wish too that like if you're that if you're that good to play on TV and you're that good to make sixty million dollars a year, I would love them to just go buy a box of balls from Dicks, for example, play it right off the rack, go buy a, like a titleist set for that matter off the shelf, and not have all this custom stuff and that they have fit to their swing and then just go like, see how good they truly, I'm not taking any discredit from any of these top players in the world, but you know, well, this is what, this is what Bobby was saying last night. We were, or last week we were talking about the Ryder cup and he'd like to see a Ryder club paid, played at, you know, a, a basic, well, I know it's supposed to be a played at Beth page, but you know, take them out to a non prepped up golf course and see, see the good competition. Then I just look at it from the opera, from a golf course operator side. You got these people that are going to be out there. They're yeah, they're not going to want to move up a tee box, but now they're going to miss more greens because, bro, they're going to stay back there on the blacks and they're going to now hit it five percent shorter and they're not going to knock it on the green. It's going to take longer to time. I don't understand that. The courses are going to change, like like your your black tee boxes 
won't be in the same place. The the courses are part of the problem. I I want to I'm going to bust on some architects here. The architects and some are some of the problem with the distance game as it is as right now. Because everybody, give me a sixty six hundred yard Donald Ross design, and then look at look at how it's it's lasted through history. And why did we need seventy two hundred? Because everybody had to be bigger and better. But, well, but if I, it'll moderate, if it'll moderate bomb and yep. gouge, I think bomb and gouge is kind of one of the worst thing that ever happened to golf, and that is, I, is and, I agree, and, and that's distance at its core. And so, I guess if if we could moderate bomb and gouge, I'd be I'd be for it. I'd do it. You know, I think it. I like that aspect of it. I hope they don't try and, you know, the word that the hot word right now with all this is bifurcate. I hope they don't bifurcate. No. Um, well, the thing that I read was that they're not going to do that, but for a short period of time, I think two years. Like, I believe that that the changes for the tournament players in USGA, tournament golfers, you hear that? And the USGA stuff would um, happen in 2028 and then for the general public in 2030 was what I read. So um, there might be, a couple of year period of bifurcation, but at the end of the day, um, I I do not think that that's a great idea either. Bifurcation is I I completely disagree with that. All I know is I'm going into the woods. I'm ball hawking like a mother, and I'm and and I'm not putting a dollar on them anymore. They're going to be up around two, three, four dollars a ball. So why are you in the woods? What What do you mean? Like what do you? I'm going to find all the all, all the. You know the golf balls before they roll them back, and I'm going to hoard them. Yeah, you can sell them on the block, sell them at the corner, Andy. They'll be collectible. You know what, Alan? Back when you were a young lad, you could have been playing Spalding Molitors, which were not USGA legal. So what were those? I probably did. So you've (laughs) always had the opportunity to be the thief that that you're talking about. Dunlop Blue Dot. (laughs) Well, why are you in? Why are you going to look in the woods, anyways, Alan? You hit the ball straight down the fairway. Well, He's trying I to do. help his other players. I do, but I'm just I'm being <laughs> entrepreneurial, Christian, and, and saying I'm going to go find golf balls that are juiced. Yeah. Whatever you, you say. I'll tell you what. You know who looked juiced? Andy? Tiger? Mr. Woods? <laughs> Holy hell. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean what wow. workout regimen is he on? I don't know. He looked, he looked great, though, to be honest. I mean – Hmm. I'll get into my thoughts on Tiger in a second. Well, let's, I ask our, let's ask Andy our and I guest. are in the same category on this one. Let's ask our guest panelists. Mike, what did you think of Tiger's performance this week? Uh, it was kind of what I expected. I, I, I got tired of the hype all week long, you know, and, and golf can't help it. And, and he does. I mean, my club repair guy said when Tiger played, he got more clubs, you know, on Monday, you know, it was, it was unbelievable the impact he made. Um, that being said, you know, I played with Tiger when he was 16, he came to the Woodlands here in Texas to play in an AJGA tournament. And a friend of mine ran the tournament. So they had like a pro-am uh, before it. And uh, I had never heard of Tiger, which seems impossible that day ever existed. But I thought, his name is Tiger? You know, what? what, what is that all about? Anyway, I thought he was a great kid. Uh, he shot 68. He was in a bunker on the back nine. He was about 280 out on a par five. And he said, Mike, what do I hit here? And I said, well, just, just hit a three iron up there and get it because, you know, you're you're about 280 so he hit a three iron in the, in the greenside bunker and he's 16 years old and i'm like uh 
Mike, he said something smart Alec, and I said, Tiger, I'm sorry. I said, I've never seen anybody hit a three iron that far, but um, I thought he was a great kid. Uh, but I don't really, I, I, I didn't think he was a very good example, even before all of his, uh, his problems with uh, Elon. I, I, I didn't like him throwing clubs. I didn't like him cussing. And I thought, I thought he was kind of a bad example. I didn't like the fact that he, he didn't really um, hang around for autographs much. And uh, uh, so I, I, I thought he was a great kid. And uh, as, as an adult, I, I just don't think he's been a really great example. I think he had a great opportunity for many, at many different levels um, to be that, that great example, not just to, you know, help the game, um, you know, not just be uh, a bunch of us white guys, but uh, also to, to be someone. And, and, and a lot of guys will tell you that Tigers the reason they, they play golf and a lot of tour players say that. So I know that's true, but I think his influence could have been you know, broader and wider and more and more positive um, had he taken that opportunity to do that. Question. I, it was average. I mean, there's no other word for it. It's, it's what everybody probably expected from Tiger. I mean, I, do we, I, I'm a firm believer and this is, I've said this for years since his injuries came out. I don't think he ever wins again. That's just my take. Obviously people are going to disagree um, and you can't bet against Tiger Woods, obviously, because he is Tiger Woods, right? But the problem that I have with him today is the fact that when he doesn't play well, he blames it on something. He'll blame it on his, oh, I'm I'm gassed or I'm I'm this or I'm that or whatever. And, you know, the course that he just played wasn't a super hilly course. And he's gassed by that. There's other courses. I'll take Augusta for that matter, where there's a lot of hills that he has to walk up. 11 is not an easy, I've never walked it, but like seeing it on TV, not an easy walk. I just, he's done his time. He's, he's one of the top three golfers of all time. We all, anybody would agree with that. I'm just saying for now, it's still good for the game if he plays obviously, but I just don't think it's a realization of him ever winning a major for that matter, because he can't keep up with, the Rory McIlroy's today when, when healthy and playing well, the JT's of the world, like he can't, in my opinion, keep up with them. That's just my take. So. Yeah. I think, I think he's got the the competition bug too, which is good. But I, I think in, in the spirit of Mike's book, he does have a lot of excuses. A lot of the time, you know, at the end of his first round, you know, he got in front of the microphone. The first thing he said was I'm sore. What do you soar from? Like you soar from playing golf because like this isn't your first round of golf in like six months or anything like that. You've been working your way up to this. But I mean, I, I just don't get it where it's always it's always something, you know, and and uh, but again, he's he's Tiger and and I love him. I love watching him play. Um, but as as you mentioned earlier, Alan, with Jordan Spieth yapping all the time on the golf course, you know, Tiger's giving excuses all the time off the golf course. Agreed. Leads right into, Andy, leads right into your live report. My live report? <laughs> <laughs> well, there seems to be a little chatter um, about one John Rahm uh, being a done deal to live. And I was pressing our, our friend Christian this morning who, who texted us. It's a done I saw deal. It on, I saw it on social media. What's They're that? using that term. They're saying done. It, it's, it's saying well, only Christian was. 
I, I've been reading a couple different sources and it's saying that he is in extensive talks with live yeah, upwards sure. of the 300 to $600 million range yep. to go there. Yep. And I, I, I've heard, I've heard from some really reliable, like in the know sources that it's, it's done. Like he's gone. So, but until, I don't, until it's, it's official, it's not official. I don't, I don't blame him for taking the money. I've said it for anybody that's gone to live. I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of live, but with that kind of money in front of you, I would say yes to it as well. But I think this is, the, I think the PGA, if I'm being honest, this is a huge loss for them. If they lost John Rom, big loss. Honestly, I said the same thing about Cam Smith when he left. This is bigger than Cam Smith. No offense to Cam. This this is equivalent to them losing. I mean, if they lose John, I hope to God they don't lose Rory. I really hope they don't lose Scotty or the JTs of the world because John was not a huge supporter of Live when it first came out, and now they're flashing hundred million plus dollars in front of him, and now he's going. You know, I think this is a big scare for the PGA, and I think it's a big it's a big loss for them. Yeah, if if he goes, you have to ask the question: How much money do you need? You have, you know, you have to ask that question because I think, I think Phil and um, and Cam Smith, all those guys, they've traded their legacy. In, in my view, it's how I feel. I may, it may, I may be proven wrong. And, you know, Liv goes more mainstream, but I think they're really throwing away their legacies in golf. And if you're worth three hundred million instead of six hundred million, I don't know that that's a good trade off. We've we talked great. about that ad nauseum on this podcast, Mike, and I'm with you a hundred percent. It's like, do I understand why some people would do it? If if tempted, if I were in their shoes, would I do it? Probably. Um, but at the end of the day, and Chris Stroud, you know, kind of a journeyman PGA Tour player, has a grievance with the PGA Tour because his his bitch is that they're really catering too much to the to the small group of people that are making all the money um and you know what he's right he's right i mean like phil all of phil's complaints and about the pga tour and about the way they're they're managing all all of this you know purse money and and all the extra money that they supposedly have it's all about him. It's all about, you know, that, that top 30 players. So they want to pay those guys more money. Um, well, but again, and we've talked about that before. Like when is enough enough? I, I don't disagree. There are their counter argument. Those top 30 would be, we're the ones that are coming to see. Well, that's true. Again, I mean, it's the oldest story in the world, you know, the yeah. rich, richer idea. Yeah. Yep. 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 All right, we will find out if Mr. Rom's on the hot seat after this. But uh, Andy, Mr. Booker is Mr. On Booker seat. is on the hot seat. <laughs> well, I just want to say right now, I'm not going to live. Yeah, <laughs> not for no. six hundred million. We're no, we are, not we for six hundred million. <laughs> this, this is the hot seat, but oh, we're, great. Not gonna, we're not going to ask you your live plans. Okay. Um, so it's only the warm. He, he brings them at you fast and furious. So be, be, be ready, Mike. I'm trying. So, okay. Question number one on the quiet, please hot seat. 
What's your lowest 18 hole score? 63. 63. What are your three favorite golf courses that you've played? I, I love Pebble. I love um, uh, Royal County Down. Well, I have a love hate with Royal County Down, but I got to <laughs> put it in your question as my answer. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I really like uh, Sawgrass. Um, oh, I love Sawgrass. I really love Sawgrass. Um, what three courses have you not played that you'd like to play? Um, I think, I think I've, I've, I was fortunate enough to play Augusta. I got to play Augusta. So that was, I, ch I checked that box off as far as courses I wanted, I wanted to play. Um, I think some of the, some of the courses that were in the, in the U S you know, U S open rotation, like, um, I'm blanking out on some of the names. Um, uh, like Shinnecock. Shinnecock's what I was trying to think of. I'd love to try, I'd love to play Shinnecock, um, especially under a tournament condition, you know. And um, I'd love to, I have not played um, uh, Cypress Point. I've had opportunities and they both kind of got washed out. I, those I'd love to play out there. And um, mm, I'd love to go. I only, I only played nine holes at LA country club and, and I, I, I would love to be able to, so that's a half answer. I'd love to be able to complete my round at LA country club. This is, this is like, what do you get the golfer that has anything, everything question? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, name the three best golfers of all time in no order. Jack Nicholas, Ben Hogan, Tiger Woods in order. Yep. Oh, excellent. Nice like that list what what's the best part of your game mike best part of my game on the just the physical side uh, i would say probably driving i drive the ball pretty straight most of the time that's because my short little flat swing i can attest to that you do drive the ball well and you still get it out there pretty good for a for a say it say time. it a senior <laughs> guy <laughs> So what skill is the most important to play good golf? Well, you know, I would say you may be asking me like, you know, short game, right. Or whatever, but I would say the skill is the, the, mo the number one skill you can possibly have to be a good golfer is to be your own best friend, because there ain't nobody out there to set a pick for you to make an easy layup. There's nobody making a fabulous catch because you've, the quarterback has thrown a crooked pass. It's all you, and it's lonely, it's solitary, it's tough. And so I think the number one thing you can you can have on your side is to be your own best friend. Great. Okay, who's your favorite golfer, past or present? Ben Hogan. I think he went through so much, and uh, and he was the ultimate you know tournament golfer. He had no excuses for anything, and. I just think that um, I just think he went through so much, not just with the wreck, but when he, you know, uh, but when he was starting out, you know, he almost, you know, he had a flat tire. His first check he cashed, you know, was like a $65 check. And, but it, before he cashed it, he had a flat tire on the way of the golf course. And that happens to all of us. I get that. But he was right there on the edge to, to, to have to come home to Texas and start working at a club or what have you. And I just think that nothing was handed to him. Um, Byron Nelson was always favored over him at the club. If you read the Hogan books, you know, 
So I, I really admire uh, who he was on and off the golf course. Right. I got to interject one sec. So he was the traveling pro out of Country Club of Hershey. And when I was a member there and living out there, and there was an area on the golf course where he specifically practiced, and it was just a a, a shoot of trees. And I can just picture Hogan out there in the 40s and 50s striping it. I'm, I'm seeing him right behind you. Yeah, my, my son's middle name, actually. <laughs> nice. My son's middle name is Palmer, so... <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, I love this question. So quickly in your mind, describe the best golf shot you've ever hit, time, place, and situation. Best golf I, I ever hit was actually a pretty easy for me to answer. Uh, it was in the city amateur, and um, I uh, I uh, was playing against Pat Youngs. On, it was the second hole of the playoff um, in part three. At the, they've switched nine so many yeah. times over there, but it's the part three, and it was a it was playing pretty far back. Pin was back left. The huge drop off to the left. Pat hit a beautiful shot about 12 feet right below the hole, uphill putt. I tugged my six iron, hit on the left fringe, and went down a hill and just stayed short of the hazard. And I was probably, I don't even know, 25 feet below the hole. Couldn't see the pin at all. And I carried a 67-degree wedge with me. I always carry, I've been carrying 64 for many years, but that, that week I actually had a 67. And uh, I went down there. And, and Pat tells the story better than I do, but um, I just took a big slash at it, hit it straight up. I mean, it took about a minute for it to come down, and it came down a foot. Wow. And uh, Pat said it was the biggest shock he'd ever had in his life. And, uh, you know, I ended up winning on the two holes later. But that shot <clears throat> at the moment, uh, and, you know, a city amateur here in Houston is a pretty big deal. Still is, and it was back then. Um, to hit the shot that I had, to, it was kind of a stunner for, for Pat. And um, and it was uh, happened at just the right time because I was looking like this was going to, you know, I was looking like he was going to make a two. and I was going to make a four and to walk off with a tie was was uh, was good timing. Yeah. And for our listeners, that's a second hole, the old second hole in Memorial Park. Um, OK, last question. What do you cherish the most about the game of golf? What I cherish about the game of golf is what it's really taught me about me. That's what I really cherish. It teaches me a lot about others that I play with and how they act. And I can tell how they're going to be in the boardroom uh, by how they act on the golf course. And that's valuable and that's good. But really what it's the most valuable thing to me in golf is that, of course, it gives me a vehicle to compete and I love to compete, but um, it's, it's what it's really taught me about me. And then I can get through, I can get, you know, golf's taught me a lot. I said at the end of the book, golf really teaches you how to handle the curveballs that life throws at you. Uh, better than anything else I can think of. So I, I, I love what it's taught me about me and the resiliency that it forces you, you know, to stand and deliver or get run over. And if you get run over, you got to get back up and golf teaches you all of that. And I'm for, forever grateful to the game for that. That's awesome. So our 19th hole question, very simple. How many holes in one do you have? Two. Two? Two. But I will say they were both in competition. So I got that going for me. And one was a walk-off. It was a shotgun tournament. And I convinced the guy to press me. And uh <laughs> and uh and the guy who was, nice. was they were they were paying the they were paying the low medal that day. And uh, the, the guy had a three-stroke lead on me on that hole. And I threw it in the hole. We heard it hit the pin, so I thought, oh, it probably went in the lake. We couldn't see what it did. And uh 
he had a three stroke lead and I made a one and he three, he was so shook up. He three putted. So we tied for metal and I won the press. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but that's about as far as I can take it. Two is the answer. In fact, I, can't, awesome. I don't think I've even come close in the last, I don't even know, five, 10 years. No, almost. That's, that's awesome. Well, you survived the back nine of the quiet please podcast, the hot seat. And we are on the 18th green, Mr. Nazamus. Final thought. It's been a while since I've said it, but um, please, everyone, continue to follow us on this awesome journey that we're on. Um, I know I've been distant, but now I'm coming back full time, moving forward. All right. The schedule is open up, so I get to see all of these young studs face here on my on my left at least and hopefully mike can come back and join us because i can listen to mike talk all day long so i'll personally thank you for coming on and uh sharing some of your stories as well as your book i'm definitely going to have to buy that because it 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 looks like an amazing read Um, so yeah just continue to follow us on social media guys facebook instagram and twitter uh we'll make sure to obviously be posting this in the in the coming days and uh just continue to follow us on this journey because we have a lot of great guests coming on as well so that's my final thought. Mike, would you like to add one? I would. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It was very fun. Um, if any of your listeners have any, if they get the book and they have any questions, they can go to that website, tgplaybook.com, and you can email me there. And I promise to get back to you w- within the same day. And that's been one of the most fun things. I've been getting emails from all over the world. About 20% of the book sales have been overseas. So that's, I don't, I don't know why, but that's uh, that's been fun, too. So thanks so much for having me. I'd love to come back. You name it, I'll be here. If you get desperate enough to get me back, I'm in. Andy? Well, it's it's been great having Mr. Booker on tonight. I'm, I'm uh, happy to be able to compete with him and call him a friend. Um, he, is, he is truly as good off the golf course as he is on. So um, thank you for coming, Mike. Um, I want to touch on, of course, the live thing again, just briefly. Um, <laughs> you know, we we talk about all the rumors and what's happening, and and John Rom going, and and it it pauses you to think for a second. And for me, it, it starts to to kind of open up the shades to to what could be like, what could this become? Because John Rom is a is a pretty significant name. He's he's, you know, arguably the most significant golfer that's that's made the move over. You can argue DJ, but um, but it makes you wonder. Like at the end of the day, golf could go the way of of other sports where you have, you know, these leagues playing here and there, and and then you have the ultimate competitions being the majors, um, being played and. And maybe that's what golf ends up being is, is, you know, certain tours and organizations playing off to the side and some are going to be more compelling than others. But at the end of the day, you know, it's the masters, the U S open, the open championship and the PGA championship and throwing a couple of other events across the globe. I think that are, that are uh, also pretty significant. And um, would that be the worst thing in the world? No. Would it be the worst thing in the world for the PGA Tour? Yes, but for golfers, for golf fans, I don't know. I don't. I don't think that would be, you know, such a terrible thing to to have come out of this whole 
um, Saudi PIF deal? I've got multiple real quick. Mike, really appreciate you coming on. Great chatting. Anybody that can beat Andy down in Houston, I I love chatting with uh, people that can beat Andy. Um, Andy, I've heard it's all about the venues to answer your question about live. That's that's what I've always been told. But uh, speaking of live, um, they had big news. I don't know if you guys saw there was a trade. Carlos Ortiz was traded for as it pronounced David Puig. <laughs> that, that trade is was a blockbuster. That that's like Shohei Otani. That that trade was just <laughs> consummated. Like, it, it was like literally in the last six hours. I just saw it come across. But uh, my my final thought is really actually about a uh, feel good story. I'm rooting for him. John Smoltz has an opportunity. Finishes in the top five at the Champions Tour qualifier. To make get his champions tour card, I think that's awesome. To uh, to put in the work after playing professionally baseball, and uh, I'd look forward to seeing him succeed or someone else. We'll see. That's a great story, Mister Hydorn, Mister Booker, Mister Nazamus. It's been a pleasure. Till next week. Oops, wrong button. Wrong button again. You only have one opportunity to sell your golf property. Shouldn't you partner with an expert that offers you 30 plus years of golf industry experience combined with the reach of a global leader in real estate? Collier's International Golf Brokerage and Advisory Services understands your unique business needs. Whether it is brokerage, management, and consulting, be reassured that the market leader in the business of golf is providing you the real answers and practical solutions you deserve. Contact Golf Talk Live co-host and Collier's Golf Advisory Services member, Alan DePew, today at 717-554-8519. That's 717-554-8519.